Hello and welcome to the EMC podcast. I'm your host, Lars Brandle, and along with Lauren Nico, I'm excited to be bringing you timeless conversations as well as highlights from sessions at EMC. So what is EMC? EMC is Asia-Pacific's leading electronic music conference that takes place each November in Sydney. Scott Cohen, pleased to chat with you. How are you? Good. Um, it's, it's morning here in Bilbao, Spain, and I guess early evening for you in Australia. Now, Bilbao is a place I've never been to, and I've always wanted to get to the Guggenheim. Have you been there? Uh, I I didn't go on this trip, but I but I have been been there. It's a, it's a it's kind of a big deal here because they used a lot of public funds to build it, and it was quite controversial at a time when the city was you know in desperate need to, to use tax dollars for schools and streets and, you know, other public goods. And, and they diverted the money to build the Guggenheim. And they said, but if we build it, they will come. And it turns out they were right. And it has transformed this city and lifted everyone up. And it's, it's quite an amazing spirit here. Well, I need to get there at some point. So is it a, a business or fun trip? Uh, it's a business trip. I was uh, speaking at a, an industry event yesterday. So I trust you'll be getting some rays in before your trip down under. <laughs> yes, although it's, it's quite London weather here today. So uh, look, a belated congratulations on your new gig. Um, after more than two decades with The Orchard, you, uh, you joined the major label world and you're the new Chief Innovation Officer for Recorded Music with Warner Music Group. So what exactly is a Chief Innovation Officer? Yeah, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a number of things. Um, one of the things that, that I do is I, I work with the executive team um, and talk to them about you know, what's coming next, whether it's blockchain or virtual reality or gaming and how these things are going to impact the business and what steps should we be taking now so that when all of these things come to fruition, we're, we're perfectly placed. You know, if you can think back 20 years ago when, you know, the disruption from the web was happening, it wasn't a secret. It was just that no one did enough to be perfectly placed. Um, the other thing I do is I spend a lot of time as, as an interface at the company, the interface between the technology teams and the data teams and the business development teams and recorded music. Because often at big companies, they can become silos. And so I just try and help keep the conversation The interface really so does make you sound like a silo. You should have that put on your business card. Lockstep. <laughs> so look, I do, I, I do want to learn a little bit more <laughs> well, about VR cyborg, so, and yeah. blockchain in a moment, but you are heading to Sydney for the Electronic Music Conference and without giving away too much of the magic, what are some of the ideas you're keen to share while you're here? Well, um, <laughs> one is I don't know yet because I haven't decided what I'll specifically talk about, 
but but surely we're, I'm going to talk about where things are headed, you know. So blockchain, VR, um, AI, machine learning, uh, <laughs> you know, how, how these things will impact the music industry, the way that other technologies in the past, whether it's radio or recordings or, you know, CD, cassette, download, streaming, the web, and, you know, all of these things impacted the music industry. So there's a whole host of new technologies that will similarly impact the music industry, but just in very, very different ways. We hear a lot about VR. It, it, it definitely won't be, yeah, the, the, the key is it won't be business as usual. How do we take a three-minute song and just move it forward into the future? It's not a format shift. You're an advocate of, of blockchain. Uh, do you still find in travels resistance to the idea of blockchain or perhaps a total lack of awareness of what it is? Um, yes, yes to all. I, I, I think, um, like many things, it, it's, it's what you do with it and how you position it. And I think a lot of people merely talk about the blockchain as, you know, a distributed ledger with some security features around cryptography that, that, that help businesses. And, you know, and if that was only, if that was the only issue, then, you know, maybe spreadsheets and databases as they are today are better. Um, I like to think about what's the potential for blockchain. What's the potential for businesses built on a new set of protocols? Um, and I, I absolutely believe that, that blockchain technology will usher in a truly transformative moment uh, the way that the World Wide Web has transformed every person, every business, every country. You, you, you can't get away from it. It is, it is just so baked in and so impactful. And I think without overstating it, I think that's what we're going to see with blockchain technology. But we are a long way from getting there. Is education part of the the hurdle? Mm, not really. Not really. I mean, you didn't. You know, again, it's it's like you don't have to know how the World Wide Web works. You don't have to know how email works. Not how do you write one, but what's the underlying technology that allows email and the web to work? Nobody needs to know that. You just have to use it and see that it's far more effective than the way we did things in the past. And that's the point about blockchain. It's not how does it work and everyone should understand it. It's, it's more about how can it be used? How, what could it do that, that, that is better than how we operate today? I know it all sounds very cryptic because <laughs> I'm not really giving any examples, but so you're also behind a company called Cyborg Nest, which I understand explores the interface of biological and digital intelligence, which all sounds like the storyline of a Terminator film. Uh, it, it actually feels like it in, <laughs> in reality. Um, I don't know how much you know about that company, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a company I started a few years ago with uh, my business partner, Livyu Babbitts. And, um, in late 2016, 
I inserted a couple of titanium rods into my chest and attached a circuit board with a couple hundred components um, so that I was able to get a new sense. Uh, you know, we were creating new senses, and this sense happened to be something we called the North Sense, which was the sense of the electromagnetic field of the planet. And how does that feel being a cyborg? <laughs> well, uh, it was actually quite painful um, <laughs> for many years having this in my chest. Um, I actually had to remove it at the beginning of the summer as we're preparing for our version two. So a, a lot less physical pain, but also a real loss, you know, emotionally losing, losing a sense. It feels like losing any other sense. That is incredible. Mm. There can't be too many cyborgs walking around our planet right now. Uh, oh, actually, there's tons of them. We just don't think of it that way. I mean, at the, you know, if you think of how many people have a pacemaker, makes them part human, part machine, or insulin pumps, or how about all the people with artificial joints like hips and knees and shoulders? Um, even if you imagine, you know, what percentage of the population is still 100% biological? As in, do they have a tattoo? Do they have fillings in their teeth? Have they pierced themselves? You know, even cosmetic, you know, as in whether, whether we're talking about cosmetic surgery um, or we're talking about makeup and people dyeing their hair. Um, humans, humans have been becoming cyborgs and, and changing themselves in a couple of ways. You know, one has been cosmetic and the other has been um, medical. And we just took it a different way and said, you know, why don't, you know, if you, if you can imagine that we spend so much time and money and energy to make our homes smarter and to make our phones smarter, and we're investing all this in our gadgets, why wouldn't we invest the same amount of time and energy and money into making humans better, to make us smarter? So this was our goal to say, let's not do it for medical reasons and let's not do it for cosmetic reasons. Let's do it because ultimately biological evolution isn't keeping pace with the technology that we're developing. So we need to start enhancing us. And this was one step forward in that, in that quest. Really is a brave new world. I wonder if you could um, share some insights into what it was like working with your co-founder at The Orchard, Richard Goddard, who's an absolute legend of songwriting and production. Well, I, I still work with him today, even though I left The Orchard. I mean, he and I he came over to my place last week in London for dinner. Um, we're incredibly close, and I got to share... Um, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the most brilliant men I know, and he's accomplished so much. And, and I'm just happy that I got to share a large part of my career very closely with him. Um, he's absolutely insane. He's Benjamin Button, who's getting younger every year as I'm getting older. Um, and next year, I will be the age he was, 55, when we first met. And I was thinking of him as an old man back then, and I'm 
And now I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I, I don't feel old at 55, and he doesn't seem old at, at, as he's approaching 80. Well, we're all getting older except Richard. I should ask him a few questions. Exactly. Um, and he's got, he's got a lot of deep connections with Australia. He, he loves it there. He's been going for decades. He, he produced uh, an artist down there called Mental as Anything. Have you heard of, of them? Of course. Yeah, of yeah, course. So. Live It Up was a huge hit. Yeah. So that's Richard. He produced Live It Up. And, uh, but, but he goes way back. I mean, not to go off, off track too much, but, and, 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 but I'll tell you one of his stories. <laughs> so back in the mid-60s, he was, a, he was a, a part of a, a writing group in New York, you know, songwriters. You know, and it was the old days, you know, like a group of, of guys in a room with an upright piano, banging out songs for girl groups, you know, very, very typical way that music was created. And then all of a sudden the British invasion comes and people like the Beatles started writing and playing their own music and it, and it blew up the paradigm. And so in a bid to, to stay relevant, if you can't, if you, if you can't beat them, join them. So Richard and his two writing partners um, uh, decided that they would start a band as well, even though that they were truly successful songwriters. They thought, we'll we'll be like them. And they said, wow, when these British bands come over to to New York, they make so much more money because they're British. So we should pretend to be British. And... You know, they, they thought of that and they're like, ah, oh, no one's going to ever believe that we're, we're British. You know, we're just three New York Jews. And then they go, right, let's pretend we're Australian. <laughs> and that's when it all begins. Because <laughs> in the mid-60s, being from Australia was kind of like being from Mars. I mean, nobody knew anything about it. You couldn't get there. It was so far away. Um, so they created an entire backstory of these three guys that, Niles, Miles, and Giles, Strange Love, from Armstrong, Australia. Their father was sheep herders, and uh, they 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 had outfits made with traditional um, Australian uh, animals like zebra skin vests. Even though there's no zebras in Australia, but nobody kn- knew the difference. And they they started writing and recording songs and. They wrote this one song that was doing really well on, on radio, and they get this call from a radio station in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And this is back in the mid-60s, so these these radio stations could blast out their signal, you know, halfway across the country. And so if you had a hit on one of these radio stations, you'd have you you could essentially have a, a hit across America. So the guy calls them up and says, I can get it to number one on the radio station but I'd need the boys to fly in from Australia. And they're like, well, we're not, you know, they're not really from Australia. It's just us. He's like, I don't care. Get your ass down to, to Virginia. So the guys take a bus down to Virginia. And, he, and the, the guy says, come to the airport. They go to the airport. They put them on an airplane. The airplane taxis down the runway, but doesn't actually take off and turns around, comes back, Right where the plane is supposed to land, the, 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 
the door of the airplane opens and the steps drop down, there's a, there's a red carpet there and a bunch of screaming girls all the way from Armstrong, Australia. It's the Strange Loves. And they took that song and the song was called I Want Candy. Um, do you know that song? Of course. Bow Wow, wasn't it? I Want Candy. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, that was the song from this Australian band, The Strange Loves, and it went to number one. And that song has been a hit for 50 years now. People keep re-recording that track. Um, it's been a number one by so many artists since then all around the globe. 55 years, I think, now. Yeah. So that, that, that's Richard's connection to Australia, not mine. Well, next time I see Richard, I'll have to tell him we have a dog by the name of Candy, and we often play that song in this house. It's on high rotation. It's, it's funny, the idea of fake Australians, because if you took if you went back a few decades, Errol Flynn actually came from Tasmania, and he was good friends with my granddad. And when Errol Flynn went to Hollywood, he, uh, he denied the fact he was Australian, and he pretended he was Irish. So something happened in the years... And the years before the 60s. <laughs> I have my very own story about the song Live It Up. Uh, a friend of mine, Jeremy Fabini, was the was the manager of Metal as Anything, and he was involved with uh, securing the deal, the US deal for that song. And apparently the label, the US label, paid for it, and he went through the, the, the setup of sitting in the office of the president of the record company, and he had the big speakers going, and this executive was on the phone during the three and a half minutes in which the song was being played, which the record company had paid for, right? And at no point did the record label guy ever get off the phone during this single play of the song. And as the song finished and my guy was looking at the record guy saying, you know, what, what are we going to do with it? Uh, and the president looked up and he said, no, I don't, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. And Jeremy said, well, can we keep the song? Can we keep the track? And he said, yeah, you have it. And they took it and they synchronized it to Crocodile Dundee and off it went. <laughs> Classic. So, look, you're a very busy man. I've appreciated uh, you giving us your time, and I really look forward, Scott, to seeing you in Australia. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, only a couple of weeks away now. If you enjoyed this episode, we've got more on the way. Subscribe now to be notified when new episodes drop. If you want to take part in the MC 2019, we're back in Sydney, November 13 and 14. This year's conference will focus on the next now. We're diving deep into the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead as we enter the next decade. For more, you can follow us at EMC Australia on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, www.electronicmusicconference.com.au.